if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. I'm releasing this episode just a few days before Christmas, the Feast of the Nativity. And so, you can think of this as the podcast's Christmas episode for this year. But really, the things that I want to talk about today are relevant all year, no matter when you listen to it, because they are central, they are essential to Christianity itself. So, let's begin by thinking about the Old Testament. Now, Jesus and later his apostles said that the entire Old Testament points to or is focused upon him. And really, that shouldn't be a surprise because he is, according to the Gospel of John, the Logos, the eternal Word of God. And thus, he became the incarnated Word of God. And so, it only makes sense that the written Word of God, the Scriptures, would point to and reveal and, in a sense, unpack the eternal and incarnate Word that was with God and is God. And because Mary is what the ancient church called the Theotokos, a Greek term for the God-bearer or the mother of God incarnate, the Old Testament must also point to her. But of course it does so indirectly, because of course Mary only reflects the glory of her son and points all attention toward him. Still, it would be impossible to tell the story of Jesus Christ, the God-man, without telling the story of the one who contributed his human nature, and that would be his mother, Mary. Now, none of this is new. From the time of the apostles and the early church fathers, the church has explored these connections between Mary and Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies. But because we're so familiar with many of the Advent Christmas prophecies, over time they surprise us less and they astonish us less than they really should. And so I can, and maybe I will over time, do multiple episodes unpacking all of the prophecies and foreshadowings and allegories that illuminate the connection between Mary and the Messiah but I can't do all of them in this one episode. So, for the Considering Catholicism Christmas message this year, I'd like to focus on two elements to the story. First, I'd like to consider how Mary, in her very person, in her humanity, in her identity, is integral to the incarnation and the mission of the Messiah. And second, I'd like to look at what has become, but it really shouldn't be, an often overlooked Old Testament story, which illuminates Mary's role in the story of salvation, not only for the Jews, but for all of the nations. Okay, so to begin, my Protestant friends would also say that Mary points to her son, the Messiah. But I think that they would tend to emphasize that she does so in a sort of 
a functional way because she was the instrument of the incarnation and the mother of the Messiah. Well, obviously her life prepares us for and points us toward Jesus. Well, Catholicism obviously agrees with that, but it goes beyond it. You see, it's not just what Mary does that points to the Messiah. Catholicism also recognizes that who she is in her intrinsic nature is not only tied to the arrival of the Messiah, but that Mary's unique identity, her personhood, is uniquely necessary to fulfill the purpose and the prophecies of the coming of the Christ. How can that be? Well, Mary was, in her person, sacred. The word sacred means set apart for God, similar to holy. And if anyone in the Bible had a life that was uniquely set apart for God, it was Mary. She was chosen to bear the child that was conceived by the Holy Spirit, to contribute the human nature to the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. She was the chosen and immaculate sacred vessel in which the eternal logos, the full divinity of God, would not only be deposited, but fused and formed into the incarnated word, the Son of God. You know, my whole Christian life, I've heard Protestants downplay Mary's role. I've heard pastors say in Christmas sermons that, in essence, she was nothing but a a scared 14-year-old girl who had agreed to God's plan, but didn't really understand it. You see, there's a tendency in evangelical circles to treat Mary as if she was just the oven that the Messiah bun was baked in. But nothing could be further from the truth. From the earliest years of Christianity, the church recognized a remarkable truth about Mary. She was the second Eve. Think about it. The first Eve was an innocent woman, free of original sin, sacred and set apart for God's purposes. But Eve had free will. She wasn't influenced by original sin. She could freely choose to follow or to reject God's will and his plan. And that's what Eve did. And because of that, sin and death entered the world and her fallen nature was passed down to her descendants, to us. But the ancient church recognized that while Eve's no to God brought sin and death into the world, Mary's yes brought the cure for sin and death. You see, once again, an innocent woman, free of the influence of original sin, was given a choice to trust and follow God. And unlike Eve, Mary said, let it be. And thus, the Redeemer, the new Adam, could be born to the new Eve, who would reverse the curse, paying for our iniquities and conquering death and beginning the process of making the world good again. No one else in the Bible, other than her son Jesus, said yes to God as completely as did Mary. But in order to do this, she needed to be free of the influence of Eve's prior choice. And so, she was immaculately conceived. Now, that doesn't mean that her mother Anna was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit as Mary was with Jesus. No, Mary was conceived by her parents in the normal way. 
But by a special miracle of retroactive grace, at the very moment of her conception, the stain of original sin was interrupted, not passed down to her. She was sacred, holy, set apart for God. Mary was born with a truly free and uncorrupted will, which meant that she could stand in place of the old Eve as the new Eve and make a choice for or against following God and allowing his plan to unfold. And when the angel Gabriel came to her and announced that plan, Mary exercised what is called in the Latin of the historic church her fiat, her choice. And what she chose was to say, Here am I, a servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Now, because of her sacred and holy nature, Mary could not only be the new Eve, she could be the new Ark of the Covenant. Mary was, in her person, sacred space. Consider what was inside the Ark of the Old Covenant that Moses was instructed to build. By God's command, it contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments, so the Word of God. It contained Aaron's staff, so the might of the Lord. And it contained a pot of the manna by which God had fed the Israelites in the wilderness, so the bread of life. And all of this foreshadows Mary, the sacred space of the Incarnation. For in her womb, in her person, she carried the word of God, the might of the Lord, and the bread of life. Mary was the Ark of the New Covenant. And when she went to the hill country outside Jerusalem to visit her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth's child, John the Baptist, the prophet who came to announce the Messiah, leapt and danced for joy in Elizabeth's womb, just as King David had leapt and danced before the Ark of the Old Covenant when it entered that same area. So you see, Mary doesn't just draw our attention to the Messiah because she happened to be some confused and frightened and homeless teenager who just happened to be the surrogate womb that God borrowed for his arrival. Because Mary is the new Eve, whose obedience made possible the new Adam, because she is the holy place upon which the presence of the Lord came to dwell, because she is the sacred vessel in which the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, could be purely incarnated, because she was the Ark of the New Covenant that brought redemption and restoration to the cosmos. No, Mary doesn't just point to the Messiah. She was integral to his mission. Now, the entire Old Testament foreshadows the coming of Christ and the New Covenant. As we've just seen, Eve and the Ark of the Covenant both came to completion in Mary. But there are other foreshadowings of Mary in the Scriptures, and they point to the New Covenant in Christ as well. One of those is the Old Testament story of Ruth, which is found, naturally, in the Old Testament Book of Ruth. Now, to be clear, the Book of Ruth is not a perfect prophecy of Mary, nor is the woman Ruth a perfect Old Testament type of Mary. There are important differences, obviously. Ruth was a Moabite widow and Mary a Jewish immaculate virgin. But throughout the Old Testament are woven 
conceptual foreshadowings and thematic clues and allegorical hints of God's covenantal plans. And the story of Ruth had these shadows and clues and hints which are meant to point us like like a treasure map to the revelation of the full truth of Mary and the coming of the Messiah. So, briefly, the story of Ruth is this. During the time of the judges, so after the death of Joshua and before the age of the kings, there was a famine in Israel. Looking for food and opportunity, a Jewish man named Elimelech moves his family from Bethlehem, yes, the same place that Jesus would be born, across the Jordan River to the neighboring country of Moab, in what is the modern nation of Jordan. He had a wife named Naomi and two sons. And while they were living in Moab, Elimelech died. His two sons married two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And so, as a widow, Naomi was living with and being provided for by her sons and their wives. But after ten years, both of her sons died. So now, there were three widows, not related by blood. There were no men to protect or provide for them. So, Naomi decides to leave Moab and return to her kinfolk in Bethlehem, across the Jordan River in Israel. She tells her daughters-in-law to return to their own families and to try to find new husbands to provide them security. Orpah reluctantly agrees and heads back to her people. But Ruth will not. And in a famously poignant passage, Ruth says to Naomi, her former mother-in-law, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. The two women returned to Bethlehem in time for the barley harvest, hoping to find kinfolk to provide them some charity, because they have nothing and they're facing starvation. Now, something that you need to know about the little town of Bethlehem, in Hebrew, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. In the story of Ruth, it is where the ancestor of Jesus is given bread, and it is the place where the bread of life would be served eventually to the world. Now, there was a provision in the covenant that God gave to Moses that when farmers harvested their fields, they were to leave the crops along the edges of the field unharvested so that the poor could come and gather the leftovers. It was called gleaning. And when Naomi and Ruth get to Bethlehem, Ruth goes out into the fields during the harvest to glean enough for the two women to keep themselves alive. But while she is gleaning, she meets the farmer who owns the field. His name is Boaz, and he has heard from townfolk how this Moabite woman remained loyal to her former mother-in-law and followed her here to help her. Boaz is deeply moved by Ruth's goodness, and he gives her extra provisions. Now, Boaz was a kinsman of Naomi's husband, and thus Ruth's former husband. And by the laws of Moses, he is obligated to marry Ruth to provide for his kinsman's widow. Now, Ruth doesn't understand these Jewish laws, but Naomi does. So, 
She advises Ruth to go to the threshing floor and reveal to Boaz their family connections and to request that he act as the kinsman redeemer and marry her to provide a home and security. So she does. Boaz is willing, but he realizes that there is another kinsman in Bethlehem who is a closer relative to Naomi. But that man is unwilling to fulfill the obligation, leaving it to Boaz. Thus, Boaz marries Ruth in Bethlehem, and Naomi becomes part of their household. In time, Ruth and Boaz have a son, and they name him Obed. And then the book ends with what we would call today the reveal. Because it tells us that, in Bethlehem, Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. And thus, Bethlehem became the city of David, who would become king of Israel, whose descendant would one day be born in his city and extend his kinship to the world. Yes, Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David, through whom would come the Messiah. So, in the story of Ruth, we see foreshadows and hints. There's a good woman, a woman of loyalty and faithfulness. She says yes to God's plan for her life and God's plan for redemption of the world. She comes to Bethlehem in poverty. There is a kinsman redeemer in the story. A baby is born, and through that baby would come the throne of Israel and eventually the redemption of the world. The Jews of Jesus' time knew the scriptures. They knew the story of Ruth. They knew the significance of Bethlehem, the house of bread, and the city of David. And as Jesus began to do marvelous things, fulfilling the messianic prophecies, they spotted the connections and the clues that were woven through the stories and how they drew the eye through Mary toward the Messiah. But that's not all of the ways in which Mary points to the Messiah. In some senses, Mary is representative of the whole church itself. You see, the English word church is from the New Testament Greek word ecclesia, which means a gathering or assembly of citizens that have been called out or summoned from their homes and gathered together for some civic purpose. The apostles chose this word because the church is the assembly of the saints called out of our former lives and gathered together for God's purpose. Now, Mary is the first and greatest of the saints. Jesus is called the firstborn and head of the church, but Mary is the first and most faithful of those called to follow the Messiah. She was the first to respond to God's plan for the incarnation with her fiat, her let it be. She was the first to know the messianic plans for him as it was revealed to her by archangels and the Holy Spirit and the testimony of shepherds and prophets. She was quite literally the first to encounter and know Jesus when he was conceived in her womb. She came to know him as all mothers come to intimate interior knowledge of their children as they carry them for nine months. She was the first to behold him, the first to hold him the first to hear his voice and his words, to know his mind and his moods. Others would be blessed by his hands, yet others would drive nails through those hands, but she was the first to count his fingers and hold those hands. Others would follow his footsteps, but 
she saw him take his first steps. In all things and in all ways, she was the first to know him. In all things and in all ways, she was the first to know of him, to know him, and to follow him. From his childhood, she treasured these things in her heart, and his mission pierced her heart, and she was there for all of it. So, she is the first and greatest of his disciples, and the first and greatest of the saints, those holy men and women that followed God. And because of that, while he is the head of the church, she stands closest to him, reflecting his glory. She is not only the new Ark of the Covenant, she is like a, like a new Noah's Ark, or maybe more accurately, Noah's Ark was a kind of foreshadowing of Mary. For in her love and devotion are contained all of those who are called to survive the final judgment and enjoy eternal life in a new creation. On the cross, Jesus says to John, the beloved apostle, Behold your mother. That operates, I think, at two levels. Practically, Jesus was asking John to take Mary under his protection and to provide for her. And by church tradition, he did in the city of Ephesus. But at another level, John stands at the foot of the cross as a representative of the rest of us. And Jesus says to him, and to us, Behold your mother. His mother has become our mother. The church is the body of Christ, and Jesus is its head. It is animated by the Holy Spirit. But in some sense, Mary represents Holy Mother Church to us, the institution that nurses and instructs and cares for us, as she did for Jesus, her son. More than that, she represents Christ's conquest of evil. God prophesied that through Eve would come one who would crush the serpent's head. And through the new Eve, that one has arrived. And through her has come the healing of the nations. In the city of Rome, within St. Peter's Basilica, you will find Michelangelo's marble statue, the Pietà. Now, I almost said Michelangelo's divinely inspired Pietà, which tells you how I feel about it. But even I know when I might be going just a bit too far. I have no evidence that the Pietà is divinely inspired, but I cannot think of any piece of Christian art in the last 2,000 years that is more likely inspired by divine truth and beauty and more deserving of that term. But it's a curious composition. First of all, my Protestant friends would probably argue that it isn't biblical. There's no place in Scripture that records Mary holding Jesus' body like that after the crucifixion. And besides, it, it, it sort of makes no sense. Michelangelo portrays Mary as a young woman, maybe even a teenager, with a full-grown Jesus on her lap. By the time of his death, she would be late middle age, or maybe even early old age by the standards of those days. And here's another thing. Michelangelo carved her out of proportion, so that if you sort of untangled the two figures and had them stand side by side, she would be two or three times taller than him. My Protestant friends might admire the statue, but they would also argue that the theology of the whole thing is a mess. But that's because they don't understand it. The Pietà doesn't portray a biblical scene. It portrays theological truth. 
I believe that Mary looks young in the composition because it's capturing her not at his crucifixion, but at the Annunciation, the moment of her fiat, the moment of her saying yes to God's plan of redemption. This sacred young woman, this holy girl, by her obedience to God's will, is offering her son to the world as a perfect sacrifice. The Pietà represents the implications, the significance of her choice. In the Pietà, at that moment of the Annunciation, she is looking forward and saying, let it be. And she is proportionally large because by the gift of Michelangelo's eye and hand, those proportions sort of come together and the symmetry beautifully represents her as Holy Mother Church offering us his body and blood as Holy Communion. As one approaches the Pietà, she seems to be saying, Take, eat, and drink, and know that by this perfect sacrifice, your redemption has been purchased. And so, this year at the Feast of the Nativity, I hope that you will look upon Mary and see that in all ways, in her person, in her purpose, and in her place within God's plan, she always points us toward the Messiah. Catholics do not worship Mary because Mary does not desire or ask for our worship. Over the ages, even when she has appeared to holy men or women, she never asks anything for herself. She never draws any attention to herself. She always leads us to her son. She always reflects his glory. And she always urges us to obey him. In the New Testament, her last recorded words or at the wedding at Cana. Now, surely she spoke after that, but I believe that it is deliberate that her last recorded words are an instruction. She tells the servants and us, do whatever he tells you. So, this Christmas, look at Mary in the nativity scene and notice that she is always looking at the Messiah. Follow her gaze. Follow her instruction and follow her example. And Merry Christmas from One Whirling Adventure and the Considering Catholicism podcast. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.